The Gospel of John is a bit different from the other Gospels in that it doesn't only just recount a number of the events of Jesus' life, but it also contains quite a lot of teaching in the form of conversations. Uh, John includes not only seven or eight miraculous signs to help us see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, but he also includes the seven I am sayings of Jesus, in which Jesus reveals just how great and powerful he is. And then backs that up with the conversations that John lets us listen into. We uh, get to hear some of, of the discussion that Jesus had with his disciples and individuals and the crowds and the Jewish leaders who opposed him. Uh, hence, chapter 6 that we looked at last week with the teaching surrounding Jesus' claim to be the bread of life. And then now the conversation at the Festival of Tabernacles that we're going to look at this week and next. These teaching conversations are perhaps not the easiest to follow or engage with. It's not a miracle story that we're going to be reading about. It's not a dramatic scene. It's not strong ethical teaching on how we're to behave uh, dare I say it, it, it maybe comes across as a bit boring. But actually, there's, there's a lot of the Bible that doesn't make for good children's Sunday group stories. Uh, there's a lot of the Bible that we have to work at a bit to benefit from. And I think that's true of this passage this morning, the first half of John 7, and uh, probably some of the other passages that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. But as we work at it and work at understanding what God's Word says, I think we will discover some points of application. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So let's approach this passage today with open hearts. Uh, John has included it for a purpose because it helps us to see more clearly who Jesus is I've divided today's passage, the first 31 verses of John, into three chunks. And for the first section, I'm using the title, Jesus Goes to the Festival of Tabernacles. John 7, verses 1 to 13. Let me read it to you. John 7, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Therefore Jesus told him, that My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? 
Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. This is one of those passages that causes us some confusion right from the beginning. Uh, So what's going on? Well, verse 1, Jesus went around in Galilee. He stayed away from Judea and Jerusalem because the Jewish leaders there were trying to kill him. Opposition is mounting, and we see that now through the rest of John's gospel. Uh, The Jewish leaders have decided that they want to get rid of him, so Jesus wisely stays away until the right time. But then we read verse 2, that the time of the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. Uh, Tabernacles was a sort of Jewish harvest festival, uh, thanking God for his provision of rain and crops. It was also a remembrance of God's provision for his people during their wandering in the wilderness, his provision of of water and manna and quail and uh, Uh, I suppose a celebration of the fact that God dwelt among them. He tabernacled in their midst in that special tent. And some of the pilgrims at the festival in Jerusalem, they even sort of constructed elaborate shelters or booths out of branches in the streets or on the rooftops. Uh, And it it was a really big deal. Hundreds of thousands of people processed into the city. And so Jesus' brothers say to Jesus, verse 3, Uh, Now, so this is Jesus' physical brothers. These are the other children of of Mary and Joseph. They say to Jesus, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. But verse 5, John comments, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. So, even Jesus had family members who didn't believe in him. That's probably quite encouraging, isn't it? Uh, For those of us who have been trying to live the Christian life before a non-Christian family member, but it hasn't yet resulted in them coming to faith. Sometimes family members just don't get it. They, They think we're a bit strange. It's It's also encouraging, though, that we know from later in the New Testament that at least two of Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, do eventually come to believe in him. There is hope for our family members. But but at this point, the brothers of Jesus, they don't get it. Uh, They're prepared to encourage Jesus to get on with his public ministry and tell him how to make the most out of the crowds in Jerusalem, how to to whip up, stir up a a reaction. But it's just their worldly wisdom speaking. I was uh, having a a conversation recently with with someone uh, about the way uh, non-Christian family members or or friends are, are at times quite happy to give us a bit of advice about how we should be living the Christian life. Uh, but that's what's happening here. Jesus' brothers, they're, they're prepared to tell him what to do from their perspective. But verse 6, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. You can go to the festival any time you like, for the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Jesus 
is not a nice, quiet, inoffensive character. He challenges people, and some people don't like what he says. Jesus knows he'll face opposition in Jerusalem, so he tells his brothers to go up to the festival on their own. They should go and join the pilgrim procession, but not him. He's he's not going, he says in verse 8, because his time has not yet fully come. But then we come to this really confusing bit, verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. So what happened? Did Jesus change his mind? Was he not being entirely honest with his brothers? No, of course not. It was simply that Jesus was operating on the timetable and in accordance with the Father's way of doing things. He wasn't going to go with his brothers on their time scale, nor publicly as part of the procession. I'm, I'm not going to go with you at this time, not in the way you want. I'll go at the leading of the Father when the time is right. He goes to Jerusalem soon afterwards, but more quietly, because the right time had then come. Understanding uh, verse 10 is an example of how when we find a thing in the Bible like this, which at first glance might appear one way, it's important to think carefully about it or to find a commentary and read a bit to help us in understanding it. John then shifts the scene in verse 11. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus. Where is he, they asked. Uh, So they're they're expecting him to come to such a big festival. And they're looking out for an opportunity to arrest him. In fact, they're so opposed to Jesus that that the people are fearful of saying anything publicly about Jesus. But verse 12, there was widespread whispering about him among the crowds. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. So already different reactions to Jesus from the various groups of people. And we'll see how that develops as, as the rest of the chapter works out. Here's the second section of the passage, verses 14 to 24. Jesus teaches at the festival. This is him teaching at the festival now. John 7, verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were, there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? In other words, uh, without having been taught in one of the Jewish rabbinical schools. Jewish religious knowledge was thought to be passed from one rabbi to the next, and uh, that was how education went. Verse 16, Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak in my own. Whoever speaks in their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. 
Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Again, quite a lot of different ideas in these verses. Uh, The first to do with the quality of Jesus' teaching. Verse 15, we're told that the Jews were amazed at the way he taught. Similar to statements in Matthew and Mark's gospel, uh, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. There was something incredibly different about the way Jesus taught. Maybe like uh, listening to a university professor talking about their area of expertise rather than uh, listening to a, to a lecture or just teaching out of a textbook. Next, verses 16 to 18, the source of Jesus' teaching. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. It comes from God the Father. Jesus is, is not speaking on his own authority for his own glory, but speaks what is true about God the Father, so God is glorified. And so then anyone who is his genuinely seeking to live their life according to the will of God, verse 17, they will recognize that Jesus' teaching comes from God. They'll accept what he says. This this contrast again being set up between those who, who claim to be religious, but they fail to see, and those who genuinely seek after God and come to recognize that Jesus is God the Son. Here's the next thing, verse 19. The Jewish leaders are breaking the Mosaic law by trying to kill Jesus. Verse 19, Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? The law of Moses that was so precious to the Jews, uh, to the Jewish leaders in particular, uh, prohibited murder. And, and, And yet, they're plotting to kill him. The crowd, though, verse 20, they're unaware of the plot, so presumably this is the crowd of pilgrims from outside of Jerusalem. The crowd thinks Jesus is out of his mind. He's he's paranoid. You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? And then Jesus addresses the heart of the problem, verse 21 and 24. And and this goes all the way back now to John chapter 5. You might remember a number of months ago, uh, we looked at the story of the healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. And remember how Jesus said to the man at the pool, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly, the man was healed. He got up, and he walked, and he carried his mat. But the day on which he healed the man was a Sabbath Presumably, Jesus did many miracles in Jerusalem, but the one that got the religious leaders really riled was this particular Sabbath healing. If Jesus was a good teacher, a a prophet from God, he would not be breaking the Sabbath rest command. He wouldn't have healed the man on the Sabbath. He, He wouldn't have told him to pick up his mat and walk. It just didn't fit with their understanding of what they thought could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath day. But Jesus, however, explains why they're wrong. Verse 22, he points out 
that they are prepared to circumcise a baby boy on the Sabbath in order to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so the Mosaic law, it said that a baby boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if the eighth day fell on the Jewish Sabbath, the religious leaders were prepared to go ahead and do it. And you know, in that situation, they obeyed the law of circumcision rather than the law of the Sabbath as they understood it. And then the punchline, verse 23. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a whole man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Jesus is not saying that Sabbath keeping, you know, resting on the seventh day is unimportant. He's simply saying that we need moral and theological discernment as we seek to work out what is and is not appropriate to do on the seventh day. We need to judge correctly. And I think by way of application that that is important for us too. For us today, we're probably not at the legalistic end of the spectrum like the Jewish leaders, but we're probably closer to the liberal end in that we're maybe likely to think that we can do anything at all on a Sunday. Jesus, though, in his teaching, doesn't dismiss Sabbath-keeping, commandment number four. He just says that we need to understand the true intention of the commandment. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, he says. There are some things that it's okay to do. Even Moses understood that. But by implication, there are some things that we probably shouldn't be doing. If Sunday, which is for most of us our Sabbath, if it's just the same as every other day, then I'd suggest that we're probably not being as discerning in applying God's Word as we ought to be. If Sunday is your seventh day of rest, then is it noticeably different from the other days of the week in terms of what you do or, or how you, you use it to cultivate your relationship with God? Clearly from the passage, doing good to others is appropriate. And gaining spiritual and, and physical and, and emotional refreshment makes sense. But in, in practice, what does the fourth commandment look like for us today? In terms of uh, study or em- employment or sport or shopping or housework or whatever else? Jesus would say to us too, judge correctly. Maybe that's something you could think more about or come and discuss it with me afterwards if you want to. Here's the third and final section of our passage this morning, verses 25 to 31. Could this be the Messiah? That's the question that some of the people in Jerusalem are asking. Could Jesus be the Messiah? Verse 25 and following. At that point, 
some of the people of Jerusalem. So this is probably a slightly different group of people. So these are the residents of Jerusalem now, and they're aware of the plot by the Jewish leaders. They began to ask one another, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Messiah? But then the element of doubt, verse 27. But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I'm not here in my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Again, there's just just a whole range of reactions and responses in there. Some of the residents of Jerusalem, they wonder if Jesus could be the Messiah, but they conclude that he can't be. There are the Jewish leaders who are, are trying to kill Jesus. We've seen... Already that some people in the crowds of pilgrims, they're whispering, uh, he was a good man. And others were saying, no, no, he deceives the people. And we read that his own brothers didn't believe him. And yet we're told, verse 31, still many in the crowd did believe in him. I think today we we see many similar reactions among your friends at school or, or uni or in your workplace or your colleagues or whatever it happens to be. There are those who don't believe Jesus was the Son of God. There's those who think that he was a good man or a good teacher. There are those who go further and think that the Christian religion is deceptive. There are those who are openly hostile to the Christian faith, at times vehemently opposed to the teaching of the Bible and Christian values. Yet in the midst of all that unbelief, there are still many who do believe in him, as we read in verse 31. Many of your friends who are waiting for the opportunity to get to know Jesus, people even that you could invite along to Alpha. And around the world, the church is still growing. Many, many people every day are coming to place their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. What else should we note from this third section of our passage Well, perhaps the whole question of where Jesus comes from, verse 27, it seems there was some expectation that no one would know where the Messiah came from. Although further down verse 42, others in Jerusalem thought that the Messiah would be from uh, Bethlehem, in much the same way as the Magi were directed there by Herod. And you know, the irony in all of, of the discussion, though, is that Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem, uh, uh, but the people in Jerusalem thought he was from Galilee. There's lots of these sort of ironies as we, as we read John's gospel. We have an, have an insight, particularly if you've read through the whole thing and you come back and read it again. You know what's going on, but the people in the story just don't seem to. Verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. In other words, you know I am from Nazareth. I've been teaching in Galilee, but you don't really know where I'm from. For I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but 
but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Which again is Jesus claiming that he has been sent from God. And since they don't accept Jesus, it shows they do not really know God. At this they tried to seize him, verse 30, because they realize that he's insulted their religious knowledge. But, uh, and you know, that's interesting. This is interesting. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That phrase again, his hour has not yet come. We saw that back in verse 6. My time is not yet here. There is a time coming when Jesus will be arrested by the Jewish authorities and he will be handed over to the Romans to be crucified. But it's not yet. And it's not the Jewish leaders who are in control of that timeline. They don't get to arrest Jesus whenever they want. God the Father has set a time and is working out his plan. Isn't that interesting? Even those who are opposed to Jesus don't get to work out their evil purposes with the overall sovereignty of God. And I really like verse 31 and the simplicity of what's said. Now, that's the final thing I want to point out from these verses. Verse 31, still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Will he perform more signs than this man? That is not a very profound statement of faith, is it? And yet, John doesn't seem to be condemning their faith as inadequate. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah on the basis of his miraculous signs that he's performed. Not because they have any great understanding of, of what Jesus has come to do or what his teaching means, but they conclude simply no one else is likely to do more miracles than Jesus. It reminds me of, of someone I once knew who said that they became a Christian because Jesus was a better option than the alternatives. Uh, he thought that the Christian faith was more likely to be true than any other religion he'd investigated. So that's what got him started on the Christian journey. Of, of course, uh, he came to realize that there was much more to Jesus and his teaching than he had understood at first. And over the years, he grew to know Jesus more. But to begin with, it was a decision based on probability. Which worldview is more likely to be true? It's a bit like that here with the crowd. Is there likely to be someone who does more miracles than Jesus? No, they conclude. And therefore, they believe in him. Well, I hope you've managed to stick with me as we've worked our way through all of that. And not perhaps the easiest of passages, but, but still we have been able to hear God speak to us through it. We've learned more about Jesus and where he's come from, the source and authority of his teaching. We've learned about Jesus' obedience to the leading of the Father and, and God's timing and his sovereignty over, the, over when things would happen. We're maybe encouraged in our witness to non-Christian family members who, who do not yet believe. 
We thought also about those different reactions to Jesus, reactions that we still encounter today. There was also the teaching on Sabbath keeping and the exhortation to judge correctly what is and is not appropriate to do. And there was the simple acceptance of really fairly basic faith. Our reasons for initially believing and accepting Jesus don't have to be that profound. Anyone who genuinely comes to Jesus will not be turned away. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your word and for what we've learned this morning about the Lord Jesus, your Son. Help us by your Holy Spirit to continue to reflect and and think about what we've learned, uh, to not go away and forget it, but to put some of these things into practice that we might grow, even in this day, deeper in relationship with you. Amen.